Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. If you're a regular listener to this program or someone who regularly reads my column, you know that for many months, I believe starting back in November when I wrote a column on six energy policy changes to watch for and under a GOP Congress, I believe beginning there, I've written several times since then on the issue of lifting the oil export ban. This week, Congress is scheduled to take that up in the Energy and House Energy and Commerce Committee. And so I once again have taken my attention to this export ban issue. But we're going to start today by looking at a unique angle to this issue. Just last week, a new report came out, and one of the authors is our first guest. His name is John Hours, and he's been with us once before, a couple weeks ago, when we talked about the BP refinery outage. And John is the executive vice president at Turner Mason, and they are an energy consulting firm based in Dallas. And they did this. They did this new report that I'm referencing, and it's titled "U.S. Light Crude Oil Exports: Colon Likely Destinations." And John, thanks for joining me once again. I found this report fascinating, and, and I don't know if the average person would be as fascinated with it as I was, but I think most people don't give a thought to the different kinds of oil and the different kinds of refineries and where those refineries get their oil and how that all matches up. And for me, that was what was enlightening about this report. Okay, well, certainly glad to be here, Marita. appreciate the invitation to talk. Uh, it was a very uh, interesting report to actually uh, uh, develop. Um, so the question, as you brought up, is... Uh, you know, and, and people really haven't looked at it. They've, the question of should we export oil has been brought up, but I don't know that a lot of uh, analysis has been done on where that oil might go if uh, export restrictions in the U.S. were removed, and that's what we want to take a look at. Yes, and I found, as I said, it was so fascinating because, as you point out in the report, there are different kinds of refineries, and U.S. refineries in general spent, as you point out in the report, you could you could correct me on the figure, but I recall it being billions of dollars to um, reconfigure the refineries to handle what 20 years ago, I believe, we thought was going to be uh, the oil that we'd be refining, which is heavy, uh, heavy crude, heavy sour crude. And what we seem to be producing in the United States is now a light tight oil. Am I correct? Uh, you're correct. It's actually tens of billions of dollars that were spent over the last uh, two or three decades equipping U.S. refineries to run, you know, what was anticipated. And, and, and still, they are, they are uh, growing in volume. Heavy crude coming out of the Canadian uh, oil sands regions in western Canada and Alberta primarily. And, also and, and that's of, uh, part of, let me just jump in here if I may, that's part of why the Keystone Pipeline is an important part of this mix. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the Keystone I mean, Pipeline. I know we're not talking about Keystone on the export issue per se, but just on when we talk about the, the crude supply and where it comes from and where it goes, that's why refineries in the United States are interested in the Keystone Pipeline. Yeah, of course. I mean, TransCanada developed uh, that project to uh, allow um, 
uh, the access of the heavy crude uh, from Western Canada, which by some measures, I mean, people have different ways of estimating what crude reserves are, but uh, Western Canadian oil sands, uh, by some measures, is the largest resource of uh, uh, petroleum in the world, of, of un unconventional petroleum. So, yeah. uh, and, and that production has been growing, and uh, there have been some other pipelines that have stepped in the, uh, in the uh, uh, as, as Keystone's been delayed, other pipelines have taken its place, and we've actually been growing uh, uh, our movement of heavy Canadian crude from Western Canada into the Gulf Coast over the last couple of years. Uh, and, again, and, and again something most people probably don't realize and we probably don't want to advertise. Well, it's, it's there. I mean, it's going to continue to happen. It's, it's crude oil that's readily accessible and fits in well with uh, refineries that are located in the U.S. And, and there's heavy crude in the west, rest of the Western Hemisphere as well. Uh, Venezuela has, a, has maybe the and so by some accounts, maybe they have the largest reserves of, of, of total uh, petroleum uh, in ground. Again, that's unconventional heavy crude. It has to be highly processed to, to turn into gasoline and diesel. But uh, significant amounts of heavy crude in the Western Hemisphere, and that's what U.S. refiners geared up to run. But as you uh, correctly said, with the uh, this, what they call it the shale oil revolution, we found a lot of light crude oil right here in the United States. And uh, that production, they're growing very quickly, and all of a sudden there's maybe an ex you know, so far U.S. refiners have been able to find ways of, of running that crude, but eventually if production would, would keep growing, and it slowed a bit at lower prices, uh, we could run into a situation where there's not enough um, capacity to run those light barrels economically in the U.S., and it'd be more efficient potentially to, to send those to other markets. Now, we're not there yet, but, you know, we potentially could be getting cl close uh, if uh, production growth resumes. Yeah, I want to ask you a question. I, I post my weekly column. One of the places that it is published is on a website called oilpro.com, and it's basically an, an industry kind of site. Okay, now, You've read my column, I believe, John, where I, we're going to get into Israel, where I talk about Israel. But I, this guy wrote um, a response to my column, and I'd like you to respond to it, because really I don't know the answer. And he says, Marita, in my humble opinion, you have stretched the limits of rationality to try to support your lift-the-ban agenda. I think that this diminishes your credibility. And, it's, and it is so unnecessary. Lifting the ban will produce insignificant results for U.S. producers at the expense of U.S. refiners, of course. You may or may not have noticed that the price advantage that U.S. refiners are enjoying versus foreign crude supplies has essentially dried up. WTI at Cushing is lower than corresponding crude imports in the Gulf Coast by approximately the transportation delta. Abundant pipeline capacity has allowed commercial reality to replace the previously accepted futures-dominated fiction of a surplus at Cushing. Incidentally, Cushing tanks are full and the WTI debit is essentially zero. So, I mean, I have to tell you, I'm not really even clear what he's saying there. Do you have any clue? Other than that well, he doesn't like what I said. I, I got that part. He's not happy with my column. I got that. Well, there, no, there, there's some truth to what he says, and, there's, and then there's also some other things that aren't exactly true. Uh, there was a real uh, surplus of, of, of crude at, at Cushing, an overhang, and an and inability to move it to the Gulf Coast. Uh, but, but significant pipeline uh, capacity, and that wasn't created by, by traders, or, uh, you know, the traders responded to it. 
but uh, there was a huge discount for crude inland in the U.S., not just at Cushing, but in, in Canada and in the Rocky Mountain area. That crude could not make it to market. Now, pipelines have been built such that now the inland markets are connected to the Gulf Coast, and, and so the, the differentials are based on the cost of transport to the Gulf Coast, pipeline tariffs, predictable pipeline tariffs. So that, that has, has happened. Uh, at some point in the future, as crude, if crude production was continuing to keep growing, and right now it's sort of uh, slowed growth. In fact, we've, we've decreased domestic production over the last three or four months is because of a low price environment and then the sure. pullback in drilling. Uh, but event, at, at some point, if production was continuing to, res to resume, prices came back, and we do think longer term that will happen. You do come into a situation where you have to find new places to put that growing, those, that growing supply of light crude. Uh, immediately, uh, in the immediate uh, term, a, a lifting of the oil export uh, ban or restrictions would probably not do a whole lot because we're not at the point where we can't process the crude that's being produced in the U.S., but at some point we might be. And so I, we don't take policy positions. There's, there are good uh, people on both sides of the issue uh, have good points. Uh, there, are, there are market distorting. Uh, if you were to lift the oil export ban, uh, in some ways U.S. refiners would be penalized because at that point that they, would, they, have, they still have to live by the market distorting uh, properties of the Jones Act, which limits movements of uh, crude from domestic port to domestic port to uh, U.S. Um, U.S. ships, which is a lot more right. expensive. So you could get into a situation where it's cheaper to send a U.S. barrel to a European refinery than it is to send it to a refinery on the East Coast. And that situation is actually exists now where it's cheaper to send a barrel uh, to a Canadian refinery, which is allowed under current export law, than it is to send a uh, barrel from the U.S. Gulf Coast to a New Jersey refinery. So... Uh, a lot of those things have to be A lot of distortion at. there. There's, there's market distortions. And market distortions overall are not good, are not good for anybody. So um, our, our, our study here, didn't, it wasn't, that wasn't the focus. It was just to focus, assuming it does get lifted, where would those barrels ultimately flow? And our conclusion yeah. was most of them would stay in the Atlantic Basin. Okay, well, I've distracted you with that little question. So let's get back to, and I'm sorry about that, but let's get back to your report. And specifically, because we've got about three minutes left, a little under three minutes left in our time together today, the thing that I found, one of the other things that I found very surprising in the report was the Israel component. And so I incorporated that into my column. And in the Israel component, I was surprised to see that Russia is a primary provider of crude oil to Israel. Well, it, it was a, a, an important provider of crude oil until uh, here more recently, actually Kurdistan has become the most important uh, supplier of crude oil to the uh, two uh, refineries in Israel. And, um, and I, I will note, you know, both the refineries uh, in Israel are privately owned, and they, you know, the, the government doesn't buy the crude oil. The, uh, the refineries themselves source it, and they source it from wherever is most economic. Uh, it makes sense for crude oil that's available in the Mediterranean basin to uh, go to Israel, uh, you know, from Central Asian republics like Kazakhstan, uh, but also Russia, and uh, and now Kurdistan. Um, you know, Kurdistan is, is you know attempting to market their own crude oil now, and and uh, Israel is and and they don't necessarily do it directly; it's done indirectly. I think generally through Turkish companies because it goes uh, comes out to, to the Mediterranean through a Turkish port. Uh, so 
it makes sense that uh, crude available in a med would go to Israeli refineries just from an economic standpoint. Uh, even though, again, they do source crude from the Western Hemisphere as well and, and from Western Africa and other places. But Russia was one of the larger ones, and, and now it's uh, Kurdistan's displaced it. The thing I said in my report was uh, in an environment where there is some, um, you know, we're starting to get into some geo geopolitical squabbles with crude as well from the U.S. would provide some... Uh, national security benefits to a, to a, to a, an ally of ours, you know, ability to get, you know, in case, you know, Russia has not hesitated to use oil and, and gas, natural gas as geopolitical, let's, let's term it, weapons. In sure, their, same, that's very true. Yeah. And that's the part I found interesting. I mean, also, you spent a lot of time in your report, I must say, before we close out here, which we're about to do, that Israel is a really small component of your report, and it is kind of the part I focused on. But you also talk about the Eastern European refineries and uh, how the, the U.S. light crude is a good fit for their supplies. And I had no idea that, that Russia's crude was, was a similar kind of crude oil as well. We've got about 15 seconds left, John. Can you tell folks where they can find your report? Uh, it's on our website, uh, www.turnermason.com, and it should be right on the banner there. There's a, there's a uh, rotating banner up there, and one of the uh, rotations is, uh, shows this report as well as other reports that we do. So. Um, you know, you can check and see what kind of other studies that we've done. Um, it's an ex exciting world in the oil business right now, and and uh, we got we got an unlimited number of subjects to to dig our to dig our uh, uh, dig our brains into, and they can't get to all of them. But this was an interesting one, and you know we're tearing after yeah. all this stuff. It's fascinating. Thanks for joining me, John Hours, Executive Vice President, Turner Mason, an energy consulting firm in Dallas. Thanks for joining me on. America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. 
Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we're talking about the lifting of the export ban, which of course we, we've heard news earlier this week from President Obama that he is not in favor of the House bill that I wrote about in my column this week, HB 702. Uh, to talk about this, HB 702 is the bill that proposes to lift the export ban, and President Obama came out on Tuesday and said that he is not in favor of this and he believes it should not be done legislatively, which all my sources disagree with, but that it should be done by the Commerce Department. But this is an issue that has been gaining steam in recent uh, weeks as uh, we've got so much oil that we're producing in this country. And I, I'm curious as to, you know, how will this really impact the oil producers in this country. And why, why is this an important issue for them? And so to talk to us, I'm delighted to have with me for the first time, not that I haven't tried before, but I'm delighted to finally have George Baker with us on America's Voice for Energy. And George is the executive director for a group that goes by the name PACE. But PACE is an acronym, and it stands for Producers for American Crude exports. So, George, welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm glad that we are finally connecting. Thank you, Marita. I really appreciate you having me on today. Well, you know, it's, this is, I think this is a big issue, and I've written on it repeatedly. I believe the first time I wrote on it was back in November. I wrote a piece entitled, Six Energy Policy Changes to Watch for in a GOP-Controlled Congress. And lifting the oil export ban was one of those things I addressed back in November of 2014, and, and the GOP Congress has held true to their uh, to what I pr- – my sense, my sources told me they immediately tried to uh, get the Keystone Pipeline approved, and they're working to get this lift the ban. I mean, to you know, to lift this oil ban. I want to ask you specifically, and I asked our last guest this, and he didn't really have a good answer for me because John Hours is a consulting engineer. He's not really involved in the politics. He doesn't take sides on issues. But I want to hear why this is important for the producers. And I'm going to read you briefly uh, a comment that someone wrote on a website called Oil Pro, and they're one of the many sites that publishes my column. And on Oil Pro, one of the people wrote, and this person got six likes on Oil Pro, so there are people who agree with him, and he disagrees with me. He says, Marita, in my humble opinion, you have stretched the limits of rationality to try to support your lift-the-ban agenda. I think that this diminishes your credibility, and it is so unnecessary. Lifting the ban, this is the part where you come in, George, lifting the ban will produce insignificant results for U.S. producers at the expense of U.S. refiners, of course. You may or may not have noticed that the price advantage that U.S. refiners are enjoying versus foreign crude supplies has essentially dried up. WTI Cushing is lower than corresponding crude imports in the Gulf Coast by approximately the transportation delta. Abundant pipeline capacity has allowed commercial reality to replace the previously accepted futures-dominated fiction of a surplus at Cushing. So, does that make sense to you? 
Uh, no, we think the uh, facts actually would run counter to that listener's uh, commentary. Yeah, and that's uh, what I thought. But, you know, this is on oilpro.com, which is generally kind of an industry site where the people are generally pretty well informed. And so uh, I was I was surprised to see that this person, I mean, perhaps he works for a refinery, but I was surprised to see him, you know, being so negative on my so-called lift the ban agenda. Well, who, who can explain how people uh, uh, view things? But the fact True. of the matter is that our domestic market is isolated from the world market because of this crude oil ban. As a result, we have a very limited uh, uh, supply, uh, ability of refiners to absorb our product, and we can produce far in excess of the volume that they can purchase. It's a very simple matter of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. While well, U.S. refiners have been saying that they're increasing their ability to use the kind of light, tight oil, which is the product which is uh, produced from this uh, energy renaissance, uh, they, they cannot absorb the volume that we're able to produce. As a result, we get phenomena like the oversupply uh, storage capacity situation in Cushing. We get yeah, because I've had other sources that I deal with telling me, oh, no, Cushing's, you know, it's, it's practically maxed out, and uh, especially when we had the BP refinery down last month, we had, you know, a lot of oil that was expected to go out that wasn't going out. So go ahead. Well, you remember, we're trying to rationalize a market. Oil producers cannot turn on and off the spigot. They cannot produce oil with all it entails in terms of drilling and production on a moment's notice. These things take time to plan based upon uh, the facts in the market. And what we're trying to get to is a market which is sends signals that uh, are not impacted by public policy, particularly wrong-headed, antiquated, destructive policy. From the Do you think we government. have that? Do we have that? Yes, we have that today because a producer <laughs> that cannot be assured that he can sell his product to a customer will not produce that product. And that's true if you're making shoes or pies or steel or cars or anything in this country. Sure. You sell for the market that you can see and you can get to. Our, the international community has told us time and time again, and I'm talking about our allies and our friendly nations, people in Eastern Europe, the Baltics, South Korea, Japan, they are desperate yeah, and as I found out, our oil. I found out from this report that I mentioned, this Turner Mason report, who I, my, our previous guest talked about, that that includes Israel, which I was shocked to hear. Absolutely. In fact, we've had a supply, special supply arrangement with Israel for years, and, um, and, and we should. This is an ally in the hostile region of the Middle East that needs to have a secure and safe supply of energy. Is it wise, you think, to have them uh, rely upon uh, hostile nations in their region or on, the, so, on the, the Russians for their oil? Most Americans would disagree with that. They would say no. Yeah, the Israelis, the Poles, the Romanians, the the Baltic nations, the Ukraines, they all want to get out from under the tremendous economic and political leverage that's being exercised on them. And they're turning to us for energy leadership 
uh, and we owe it to the world and to ourselves to deliver that leadership. You know, that's what I've been, I agree with you 100%, but I, I, this comment on Oil Pro just kind of threw me because I thought, well, I, in my opinion, producers want this ban lifted because, it, first off, it's just not rational. But it will allow uh, our product to be able to, like you said, help our allies reach further markets. And isn't oil, our crude oil, the only uh, U.S. product that is forbidden from export? Well, uh, what's humorous is that it's, it's not the only one, and I'll tell you the products that are. One is horses for slaughter, if you can believe it, and the other one is redwood trees, and, uh, you know, it's a precious natural resource that we have in the Northwest. So the fact of the matter is that effectively, though, we are, oil is the only product that's, that, that suffers this kind of irrational, counterproductive, and destructive import ban, uh, excuse me, export ban. Yes, but yet we can export refined petroleum product forever. Let me tell you, we are the largest exporter of refined petroleum products in the world. Yeah. You know, to say that we don't have our our oil going abroad, yeah, we're we're the number one exporter, and to say our oil isn't going abroad is... Uh, somewhat strange because it is going abroad in what refined form. Yeah. And, and but but that's but that uh, as the e uh, the Energy Information Agency has determined in their very good studies, if you allowed the export of oil, not only would there be an increase in oil exports, but there would be an increase in refined petroleum product exports as well. In other How words, would that work? Help me understand. Because the the world would enjoy the, uh, the, different, the price differential that the U.S. refiners have, the advantage they have over the rest of the world is gigantic because they use natural gas from our country as a fuel for their refineries. It gives them a huge advantage in terms of the operation of their refineries to go, to go abroad. Plus, we'd be building these relationships with our allies based on national security based upon economic alliances with our country, and we'd be the energy superpower that they'd turn to. We've been told by any number of countries that they're very willing to pay what could be called a security premium for their energy, meaning that instead of bearing the risk of their energy coming from and having to rely on it coming from hostile nations, unfriendly nations, unstable nations, they would pay an additional premium per barrel to make sure it comes from the United States, with a tr- which they can trust, they can rely on to deliver the product. This is an important advantage that we have in this country, not only the economics, but the security that we can provide as a supplier of energy. Yeah, I hadn't heard that angle on it, but that uh, that makes a lot of sense. I get crazy when I hear, for example, Bill O'Reilly, when we were talking about Keystone Pipeline, say, well, I would be for it as long as we didn't export any of it. And, uh, like, first off, we're probably not likely to because it's the oil that the refineries in the in the Gulf Coast need. But, you know, oil is a fungible commodity, and, it you know, it, it flows differently for different reasons, and I think the average person doesn't understand that. And so I hope, in part, that this week's little show, this Ameri- this edition of America's Voice for Energy, uh, will help people understand that a little more clearly. 
Absolutely. I mean, when we're 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 uh, producing around nine million barrels a day of oil these days, our industry thinks that they can grow that in very short order into eleven, twelve million, fifteen million barrels a day over time. The future is bright. It is uh, robust and it is powerful for the United States if they can seize this opportunity to unleash this, this important economic force that is the oil industry. Yeah, and it's, it's just a shame that um, we unfortunately have a White House that really doesn't get that. Well, uh, we, 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 we would appreciate if they would be supportive of this very much. They have the authority, as I think you know, Marita, under existing law to remove this oil export ban today. And yeah, you know, I've heard different comments on that, but I've only got a few seconds left before we have to take a break, so I, I don't really have time to go into that, unfortunately. Maybe another day. We'll have to talk again. George Baker, Executive <laughs> Director for Producers for American Crude Exporters, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy and helping clarify why American producers want this export ban lifted. Thank you, and, and I appreciate it very much. Glad to have you with us today. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. If you read my column this week on a variety of websites, including Breitbart.com and Spectator.org, you know that I once again am addressing the lifting of the oil export ban. And I tied it together this week with, uh, you know, an issue that's, that's in the news right now, and that is the Iran deal. And when you look at the Iran deal, we hear reports on television repeatedly about how unpopular it is with the American public. We've heard Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking about it being a historic mistake. And I referenced in my column uh, some specific polling that was done, and it was done by Republican pollster John McLaughlin. And so I'm glad to have him here with us for this segment so we can talk about, you know, the attitudes in America and in Israel for this particular Iran deal and, you know, kind of where we are on that today. So, John, welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. Pleasure to be here. Now, you poll a lot of different issues, and I know you do some polling, uh, as I understand it, for Israel as well. I polled for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in his re-election campaign earlier this year. Spent a lot of time. Okay, so, so you understand what's going on in Israel. You want to tell us first a little bit about um, the attitudes of, of Israelis on this deal? Well, the Israelis are overwhelmingly opposed to it, and uh, what's... what's uh, 
hasn't really gotten much play in the United States here is the fact that it's not just the prime minister. It's also the opposition parties that he he defeated in the last election. So there's no there's no real uh, uh, distance between them on this one policy. They all they all see uh, this current agreement uh, between the uh, the Obama administration and uh, uh, and Iran as an existential threat to Israel. Meaning that if Iran has a nuclear weapon, they've said they're going to destroy Israel. In fact, just just last week. The uh, Ayatollah himself was dancing on his Israeli flag, saying in 25 years Israel would not exist. Right, and I quoted that in my column. I mean, how can how can anyone not see that and be concerned for our one ally, or or at least our number one ally uh, that we have there in the Middle East? Right, and and last summer, they, they you know last summer. Uh, the Israelis were shelled by rockets and missiles from Gaza, where, you know, every few minutes a, 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 a siren would go off, and in their large cities, including Tel Aviv, uh, they would have to, you know, go to a bomb shelter, uh, and they would have just seconds to get there. And uh, fortunately, they have the Iron Dome technology that Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, with the help of the United States, created for them that they, they were able to shoot these rockets out of the sky. But... Um, you know, when you think about it, if Iran has intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons, you know, it, it's it's a very small country where you only have 8 million people and they live within a couple hours of each other where, you know, it doesn't take much to wipe out the whole country. So uh, they are, when it comes to Iran, they are deadly serious about that. They think this is a really bad idea and really threatens their very existence. And Iran every day uh, testifies to that in terms of their support of terror against Israel as well as their uh, uh, out outrageous propaganda against them. So the short version is this is a very real threat for Israel. Very real threat. And, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, was absolutely reelected on his leadership, not just in Israel, but in the world, of speaking out against this agreement. And uh, his speech to Congress was fantastic. Uh, you know, we my firm works for over 20 members of the House and, they, and several senators, and they were telling me that this was the best speech uh, that had ever been made since Ronald Reagan. Uh, and what they really got out of it was the reasons why this is such a, a bad agreement. And that was before it was made public, but he anticipated a lot of the bad provisions of this. And public opinion in the United States, as they learn about this, has gone two to one against the agreement. And now, you do polling. Have you seen attitudes in the United States decline towards this uh, deal? Absolutely. But myself and uh, Pat Cadell, Pat Cadell is a Democrat pollster who polled for President Carter, and we're known as a Republican polling firm, which we are. Uh, we've seen the numbers move where roughly – uh, less than four in ten Americans were against the agreement in June, to where it's a two to one uh, uh, majority opposition as of just this week or last week uh, that we did a poll for uh, secureamericanow.org, and it's it's on our website mclaughlinonline.com. It's on their website secureamericanow.org, where not only not only are Americans against the deal in total before you remind them of the provisions, but when you start telling them about that. Iran is going to get a hundred billion dollars. Uh, that that uh, Iran is going to get a hundred billion dollars that they can, you know, then support terrorism with. Then you're getting four to five voters against the deal. And the idea that Iran is going to have a 
a deal where they could self-inspect themselves that that you know the united states won't be yeah, i think that's craziness to everybody yeah and we got to take their word that they're not violating the agreement of building nuclear weapons uh then then you're getting like another eight and ten voters against it so it's it's really there's big oppositions to provisions of this and what's most outrageous to the american public is that congress never got a direct vote on this as of yet as of as of this time when we're recording this uh, there was a vote last week where the senate uh, voted uh, against cloture on a filibuster. So the Democrats basically filibustered this so they don't have to go on record as voting in direct support of the agreement, which is just... Yeah, and I hate to admit that I'm a little confused by the political shenanigans that went on to bring us to this point. I don't really understand what happened. I, well, I think there's a lot of Republicans that share that as well as Democrats. I mean, we are the bipartisan side. The, the, the bipartisan group of people that, that oppose this deal um, are, are wondering how can, it, how can it become law when it's in effect a treaty that usually requires two-thirds approval of the U.S. Senate. And, and, and this is the reverse, where if we don't have two-thirds to stop the president, the deal's going through. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think... I think there would be large public support in the United States if Senator McConnell or Speaker Boehner found a way to uh, uh, derail President Obama's support and agreement on this, particularly in giving them sanctions relief, where Iran, which is still the largest state sponsor of terror in the world and has been responsible for the killing of thousands of American soldiers over the past couple decades uh, because of their terror surrogates and going back to the bombing of the Marines in Lebanon to right now in Afghanistan, their support of uh, terrorists who, who create IEDs that kill American soldiers. Um, you know, people people would love this deal to be derailed, particularly the sanctions. They would love to keep the sanctions on Iran, that they don't get the sanctions relief, that they don't get the $100 billion or $150 billion, uh, in sanctions relief, which which we know where their whole economy is only $400 billion. If they get $100 billion, $150 billion, they'll be funding terror throughout the world, let alone the Middle East. This is just, I mean, it's just really amazing. You know, you talk about the Americans' attitudes. On some of the polling you did, and I believe this was for regulation alert that you did this polling, right. uh, about what, are, what do people think about their representatives who vote for, well, I guess they're not voting, but, you know, their attitude, and maybe that's why they're not voting, but uh, they're, what, how do the people feel about their elected officials who are supporting this deal? That was that was uh, in the Secure America Now poll. Oh, okay. Two All right. Of them, two-thirds of them were telling us they were never going to vote for them again. And about half were telling us that, uh, and, and it's because they wouldn't allow the vote. And uh, it, it, depending upon how the question was asked, half up to two-thirds of the voters were saying that they would never vote for those representatives who supported this agreement or stopped the vote on this agreement. Um, they would never support them again. Now, they um, pushed back? Yeah. Excuse me? Have you seen, like, once this polling has come out, we will not vote for anyone who supports this. Uh, that's what the polling shows, or anyone who blocks a vote. Have you seen any pushback from the elected officials uh, because no. of this polling? Uh, no, they're really trying to run from it. I mean, what was amazing was the Democrats that support the agreement, the 42 Democrats in the Senate, basically held their nose and and uh, uh, voted to shut uh, filibuster the Senate to shut down the debate on it, let alone a vote. So, uh, uh, you know, they, 
they're just trying to run from it at this stage. Like, you'll get quotes from various centers saying how bad a deal it was. They wouldn't have negotiated it. But then they got a lot of pressure from the White House. The White House really went all out. To yeah, I did a lot of reading on that and writing to my column and, and saw the, the pressure that the White House put on them. There was a good piece, I think, in, uh, I think it was New York Times, but I have a link to it in my column of how the White House pulled this off, basically. Yeah, and, and it was similar to the kind of strong-on tactics they used to pass Obamacare. And Obamacare, because of the public opposition to that, caused the Democrats to lose the House and lose it big in 2010, and now caused them to lose the Senate and lose it big in uh, last November in 2014. So now you've, when you've got real security concerns in a world that is less secure, and you've got a presidential race coming up, I mean, this could really dramatically affect the presidential race, and it could affect uh, control of the, the Senate and control of the House in terms of the Republicans being able to get bigger margins, because if something bad happens, they will blame uh, President Obama and the Democrats who supported him for anything bad that happens to the security of the United States or our allies or, or you know, just with terrorism in general in the world. Um, just like Obamacare, when Obamacare passed, if your doctor didn't want to see you or your premiums went up, you blamed Obamacare. Sure. Here, here we're dealing with national security. And if something bad happens to the United States or its allies, we're going to, and, and Iran could be held accountable for it or, or is perceived as accountable for it, there will be retribution because the voters, we just don't like this. We're just not happy at all. We're not happy with Washington in general. We're not going to be happy if... Uh, you know, anything, even if something happens that causes the price of gas to go up, uh, the price of oil to go up in the world uh, because of this kind of uh, uh, instability. So uh, it could have long-term effects on those people who are supporting it. So regardless of who your polling client is or how you have phrased the questions, you, John McLaughlin, as the pollster, are confident in saying that Israel is opposed to this, and um, the and the American public is opposed to this deal. Yeah, more important than it, granted, people in Israel are opposed to it, but the vast majority of Americans are now opposed to it. Right, and they see it as bad for American security. Now, granted, where we share a lot of values, and Israel's perceived as one of our strongest allies in the world, um, and there's real strong ties between our two countries. Um, you know, the, this is this is this is not good for American security. And the one thing that I think that bonds the Israelis to the American people is uh, the enemies that we had, uh, who blew up you know the World Trade Towers and have waged war in the United States since then, uh, are also the sa- much in large part the same enemies that Israel has. So we're joined good by point. Com- good point. Com- common enemy there, and the American people see that. So, and that's yeah. why, like, in that when you were talking about the regulation alert, Paul, uh, when we uh, when we asked them if they were aware that uh, uh, you know we guarantee the delivery of supply of oil to Israel, seventy five percent said no, but they think that's a good thing, I'm sure. And and when we asked them that uh, right now, Israel seems the majority of its oil from Russia and other former Soviet states. Only seventy three percent were aware of that. But, I wasn't aware of either one of those until I wrote this column, and, you know, I focus on this all the time. We're about out of time, John. You ha- what else do you want to say about that? Well, 
69% of the voters think that exporting Israel to make sense in terms of politics and economics and security, and 67% would export Israel uh, oil to Israel to uh, strengthen ties between the two countries. So it proves my point that um, our security is linked together, and and this resource that we have of being the world's number one oil producer right now, we ought to use that to benefit not just Americans economically and in terms of creating jobs, but in terms of securing our allies and the peace and security of our allies. I mean, yeah. the, the bottom line is, why are we taking off the sanctions on Iran so that they can sell their oil when Americans here can't sell our oil overseas? It makes no sense. Yeah, and I wrote about that a couple weeks ago. We're out of time. John McLaughlin, thank you for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Give us the website where people can get your poll. Uh, McLaughlinOnline.com. Thank great. you very much, and a great column. You, you've done a great job with the, uh, your most recent column. I appreciate it. Thanks for your help on it. Thanks, John. Thank you. We'll be, we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. All right, David, we will begin recording. That's my producer, just so you know. We'll begin in three, two, one. Welcome to the closing edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm recording this show today from Washington, D.C., and I'm delighted to have Chairman Ed Royce joining me. He's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And, Chairman, I especially want to applaud you on your work on the Iran deal last week. A lot of great effort you put forth on that. And we're going to talk today specifically about about the foreign relations impact there and the export ban and how that can help to kind of um, maybe smooth some feathers that were ruffled. So I appreciate you taking your time to join me today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, thank you, Marina. I, you know what surprised me is the most recent poll on September 2nd 3rd showed the public animosity toward the, that, that Iran deal at 78%. As you know, I led the charge against it on the House floor, but um, to us, for us in the United States, to be in a position where we are not only lifting sanctions now on Iran, and we know what that money will go towards, which is destabilization of the region, but at the same time, we have sanctions basically on our own export of domestic crude oil at a time, at a time when we're capping wells and we're. Uh, uh, we're flaring you know, gas. The the necessity of exporting our petroleum for a healthier market here to help our balance of payments, and frankly, 
to do something geopolitically uh, to use as leverage. It's very, very important. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's amazing how important this issue is, and especially as you mentioned that we're, we've got layoffs in the oil field going on right now in, a, in an industry that has really kept this economy afloat for, for many, many, many months, and yet we, we don't seem to be able to get this listed. And as you know, the president came out yesterday saying that uh, he, does not, he doesn't support the efforts being made in the House right now. No, he says uh, he's opposed to that, and as you and I know, the, the the beneficiaries of this, frankly, right now, besides his view that we shouldn't be using more energy or expect or exporting more energy, there there's a few fortunate oil refineries, unfortunately, uh, that have taken the wrong position on this. But yes. it makes no sense for us when Russia, for example, has uh, 54% of its budget for its military and for its uh, for for its government, that comes from exporting oil into the market, petroleum into the Eastern European market and and elsewhere where they have monopoly pricing. Now think for a minute what it could mean if we could export crude oil into those markets, undercut Russia, uh, help create not just jobs here in the United States, help our balance of payments, send a message to Moscow that. You know, there's consequences for what they just did in lifting the arms embargo on Iran. They were the key players in that negotiation to run interference for Iran at the 11th hour to do that. Should not they face the consequences? And and to say nothing of Ukraine, for example, look at the situation in Ukraine and how much they would be benefited. And now with the new new, uh, terminals going in, into... uh, the Baltic states and into Poland, there's an opportunity now for us to ship into those markets, again, undercut undercut uh, Russia's dominant position. So I say let's put this on the market and let's help create jobs here in the United States. Well, we surely know that Russia does not hesitate to use their energy resources, their oil and their natural gas. They don't hesitate to use that as a geopolitical weapon. When I did my research for the column that I wrote this week on this topic, I was surprised to learn how much of uh, Israel's energy resources, how much of their oil, the crude oil that Israel gets, uh, of about the 250,000 barrels of oil they use a day, that a huge percentage of that comes from Russia. Yeah, and one of the realities was that, uh, you know, with the 79 peace treaty with Egypt, Israel gave up its energy security. It, It withdrew from the Sinai oil fields. And so the United States guaranteed Israel's oil supply. And, you know, the president at the time assured that this oil security would continue. And because uh, Israel had committed itself to dependence solely on imported oil. And, you know, then we had that situation last November where the administration allowed the agreement with Israel to lapse, even even at the same time as it was negotiating with Iran to remove the sanctions on Iran on its oil exports. We finally... Uh, we're able to get that renewed in May, but the administration should not have been so lax regarding Israel's security and the credibility of the U.S. guarantee. And I think a credible guarantee to Israel now going forward 
will require removing limits on U.S. oil exports so that a secure supply can be assured, especially given the glut that we have on the markets. Yes, and the glut of oil that we have is a basically a sweet light crude, which is what our allies in the Middle East, Israel, and our European allies, that's the kind of oil their refineries are configured for. There are two of them in, in Haifa. I was in Haifa in 06 during the Second Lebanon War, and they've got uh, refineries there that can handle that U.S. light crude oil. Uh, I, I'll just tell you my observations also from yes, 06 when those Iranian when those Iranian made uh, rockets and missiles were slamming into civilian neighborhoods. There were 90,000 ball bearings in every one of those cones of those rockets. Back then they had maybe 10,000. Now they've got 80,000 uh, wow. in the hands of Hezbollah. Iran is the one that financed that transferred those weapons. So I, I went down to the trauma hospital and saw, saw the consequences of that. We're now in a position, we're now in a position where Iran has been emboldened and recently said they're going to transfer more weapons to Israel. Here's one of the things I saw at the time. That port was closed. It was closed because Israel was under siege. They, we need those refineries. You know, the United States should basically be... Uh, in a position of selling to Israel, we should have our U.S. oil exports going into Haifa, and I think that's part of securing the peace going forward. Yeah, I agree. Certainly, that's what I wrote on this week. Now, you're you're you know the chairman of a very important, very influential committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and you understand the role that lifting this oil ban can play in our foreign affairs. What do you see going forward uh, from Washington D.C. on this issue? Well, I think we're going to double down. We're going to we're going to force the hand of the administration on this. We're going to put legislation on their desk. Um, and so, Will we be able to get enough Democrats to override a veto? Because uh, do you feel that this, after the president's statement on Tuesday, that this is something that uh, he'll try to veto? You know, I think what we've got to do is make this an educational campaign to the American public. We've well, got and to that's explain. why we're doing this right now, so I so appreciate <laughs> that's your right. time. You're that's, doing a good job on that front, by the way. You're doing a good job. You know, if, if you ask Americans, when they when they see the consequences of this, and they see the way in which Russia uses energy as a weapon. When they realize what Iran is now going to be able to do and the mischief that they will create, yes. and for us to be having sanctions on ourselves as Americans, for us to be penalizing jobs in the United States, penalizing and working against our balance of payments, against our balance of trade, working against working against uh, the ability for us to leverage overseas with our allies like Israel. When people reflect on this, uh, it, whether that, that senator is, is a Republican or a Democrat, I would suggest they'd better, they'd better listen to the American public because I think the public just went through an experience with this Iran deal in which overwhelmingly, in excess of two to one, the country was against this. Yes. I think it's time for the senators and the House members of both parties to listen good and hard and consider the long-term security interests of the American people, not the whims of this president, and certainly not on an issue as important as energy.
Now, it looks like we're going to get this out of the Energy and Commerce Committee uh, this week, the bill to lift the export ban, HB 702. And I assume in the Republican-controlled House uh, that, that, that this will pass. Do you assume the same? Oh, I assume, I assume it will pass. Uh, uh, I, I feel confident uh, going forward based upon my discussions. I just came from a chairman's meeting with Fred Upton and others uh, uh, on this subject. So uh, I'm, I'm bullish on this approach, and I think at, at this point we want to get all the information we can out in front of the American public. Uh, you know, they, they say this about uh, members of the House sometimes. When they, when they feel the heat, they see the light. Uh, I think that I think we want to make certain that people are communicating with their members of Congress, with their senators, uh, and that they're explaining the necessity of moving forward with this legislation. So let's get the well, strongest possible so vote going into the Senate as we can on this. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I encourage uh, my listeners and my readers to call their, their representatives. And so often people feel like, oh, I don't know, they don't listen to what I say. Are those calls important? Uh, yes, they're enormously important because the, Do you all usually these members get a little skittish. Now, there might be a lot of pressure from the executive branch on some of these issues that are brought down on individual members to try to vote get them to vote against their constituents but remember every time that that's done they use up uh, uh, a little bit more of their political capital because uh, senators or house members only want to vote against their constituents so many times and they just cast a horrible vote against the interests the national security interests of the united states or i should say uh, many democrats just cast a horrible vote as it related to the iranian nuclear deal so I would say now is the time to come back and say, uh, let's let's at least try to compensate for some of the damage that's coming. Uh, let's do something that will help our economy, since we've done so much to benefit the Ayatollah. Exactly, How about yes. something to benefit men and women working in that industry here in the United States? Yeah, well, I think that we'll close on that thought because you've wrapped it up so perfectly. Uh, we've been talking with Chairman Ed Royce, Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, representative from California District 39, based in Orange County, California. And, Chairman, just for the record, my roots are Southern California roots as well, though I'm not there any longer. Uh, that is where my roots are from. So I appreciate you taking your time to join us today. Do you have any closing comments you want to make before we sign off? No, Marita, it's just good to be with you, and I'm glad that those that listen to your program often do their civic duty as well to make their feelings felt and heard by the members of Congress. That's the way Jefferson designed this system. He wanted people to stay informed and to let their viewpoints be known. I would just double down on your observation. Let's, let's, have, let's have everybody make a little noise with, with members of the House and Senate. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. your time today. Thank you. Maria. You've been listening to America's Voice for Energy, and please join us again next week for another important topic on America's energy policies. Hope Thank you'll you. join us on America's Voice for Energy next week on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.